A few years ago, um, I was uh, taking one of my sons, uh, he had just turned seven, and so I was taking him on this camping trip, kind of this tradition that we have when we hit seven years old, we go on this trip together. And um, I remember at, at the tail end of this trip uh, with my son Torin, we were um, at Cummins Falls. Many of you maybe have hiked at Cummins Falls, and we were actually en route back to Nashville. We decided to stop at Cummins Falls and go for a little hike. And so we get there and we park, and we're getting all of our stuff together, packed a little lunch, you know, packed some water or whatever, and uh, sat on the back of my truck and said, hey, I said, hey let's, let's run to the restroom and then we'll come back to the truck and get our stuff. So we, uh, we run to the restroom and we come back to get our stuff and I'm like, oh, let me, the doors are locked. Let me get my keys out of my pocket. And I'm like, where are my keys? My keys aren't in my pocket. Where are my keys? Start freaking out. And I look inside and right there on the driver's seat are my keys locked in the truck before we even got to begin our hike. And all of our stuff is in the truck. And I'm like, oh man, what are we going to do? So I have my phone, fortunately. So I'm really feeling stuck. So I call roadside assistance. Maybe you've had this joyful experience before <laughs> uh, where you've locked your keys and you call roadside assistance to ask for help. And I call them. And of course, we're in the middle of nowhere. And so I call, I tell them our keys are locked in. I tell them our predicament. I'm like, look, I got my son here. I'm trying to go on this hike. And I remember the operator just met me with this like, you know, I mean, you can just tell this is what this guy does all day, every day. He was not moved by my situation. <laughs> he was not moved by my predicament. He's like, yeah, well, we'll get somebody out there in two to five hours. <laughs> I just remember being like, wait, what? That's the window you're going to give me? I'm like stranded in the middle of nowhere. You're going to give me a two to five hour window where I've got to figure out what to do with my son. And so long story short, it worked out all right, you know, but we, we took the hike and we got back and we met the tow truck and they got the keys out of the car and everything worked out. But I remember just being struck by this operator on roadside assistance by his tone with me. Like it wasn't like a rude tone. It was just this total indifference, like did not care, was not moved by my predicament. And he's like, yeah, you idiot. You locked your keys in the car, serves you right. You know, just total indifference to the fact that I'm locked out of my car with my son, ruined the end of our day and what we were planning on doing together. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you've met somebody where you're in a predicament and their response to you just comes across like total indifference. Maybe it's that moment that you go to the ER because there's something like, something has happened, an injury, or it feels like crisis to you, and you get there, and that ER receptionist who's been dealing with sick people all day is like, yeah, take a number, get a seat. You know, it's just like total indifference to whatever it is you're going through. And when I see that in someone else, my, my quick response is to kind of judge their wicked heart. You know, I'm like, how dare you be so indifferent towards me? And then I quickly remember like, oh, wait, that's actually kind of the posture my heart ends up taking a lot of the times. You know, I realize that there are moments where somebody shares something with me that's really hard in their life, or I see yet another tragic headline on the news, and, and I realize sometimes my heart just doesn't have the capacity to deal with the weight of what somebody else is feeling, and I find myself responding with that same indifference. And I think if we're all honest, we've all been there. We've all had that moment where somebody else, whether it's someone you know or someone that you don't know that goes through something hard and your heart does not naturally have this response of compassion, empathy, or, or anything. It almost just feels like you can't even take it all in. You don't have the capacity to deal with the weight of it all. We've all experienced indifference. You know, and I think sometimes because we've seen indifference in others, and sometimes because we've felt the indifference in ourselves, that oftentimes when hard things come at us in life, we can be tempted to sometimes project that same posture of indifference onto Jesus himself. And we go, man, all this, there's hard things going on, and I'm looking and I'm going, Jesus, do you care? Like, do you have any heart response? 
to the hard thing going on in my life? Do you have any heart level reaction at all to the things that are weighing me down? You know, to talk about this is one thing and to talk about it in theory about the indifference of people's hearts and does Jesus have care? Is Jesus indifferent or not? You know, it's one thing to talk about it in theory, but man, when, when pain knocks on your door, it's an entirely different story. You know, beloved, we have been just in a pretty crazy season as a church family. I mean, over the last couple of months, it has just felt like tragedy has hit our family in rapid succession. You know, we we walked through and are still walking through just the loss of a child. We have a, a father of four, husband goes through a traumatic brain injury and we're just watching as it seems like his story is just touch and go. This last week, another family that many of us are close to lost their nine-year-old son. And it's like these moments where pain and loss and sorrow, it's like they just relentlessly keep hitting. And the question we all have to wrestle with is, what does Jesus feel about this? Is he indifferent? Does he care? And we, we're wrestling through our own hearts and we're all just trying to make sense of pain. And you know, we have been in this series where we're trying to get a closer look of, man, who is Jesus? What is he like? What is his character like? What is his personality like? What does he feel in the depth of his being? And today we're gonna look at a story that I think reveals the fierceness, the ferocity of Jesus, as well as his tenderness, his, his fierceness and his tenderness when it comes to our pain and when it comes to the suffering that's in the world. So we're gonna be in John 11. I wanna set the stage a little bit before we jump in in verse one of John 11. I want you to see what's kind of happening in this story. And in John chapter 10, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. And at the very end of John chapter 10, we find that the religious leaders of his day are, are conspiring together, conniving together about how they can arrest Jesus. They're all angry at him. They wanna figure out how they can end his ministry because they're all making them look bad. He's making them look bad and they wanna end his ministry and he knows that that's what's going on. And so he's left Jerusalem. He's gone to the other side of the Jordan River. He's gone away from Judea and he's with his closest followers. And that's what's happening back in Jerusalem and he's on the other side of the Jordan. And we're gonna pick up in chapter 11, verse one. Chapter 11, verse one. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, right here, we immediately find Jesus in a bit of a dilemma. See, Jesus has gone to the other side of the Jordan because he knows there are some who are seeking his life, and he finds out that one of his closest friends is sick. And if you know anything about the story of Jesus, you know that this is one of the things he did. He healed the sick, right? It's one of the things he did. So he finds out that his friend is sick and, and immediately he's kind of torn, do, do I go visit? Because the place where Lazarus lives is right back there where all those religious leaders are conniving and trying to take his life. So he's got this dilemma. Do I, do I go back and visit the sick friend and thus potentially be arrested and killed? 
Or do I not visit? And all of his closest friends who were with him were like, Lord, you can't go back there. Like, they don't want to take your life. He's like, do I, do I hold back? Do I stay back and not visit and potentially lose my friend to this sickness? And this is the tension that Jesus is in in this moment of sickness and potential death. He's going, do I go? Do I stay? Do I do something? Do I risk my life? Do I not? And what I love about Jesus is that there's always this third way that Jesus seems to identify. And you pick up on this, and the next verse he talks to his disciples, he says, listen, this sickness is for God's glory. Jesus had this perspective. He had this perspective that his disciples didn't have. And so he neither felt rushed, nor panicked, nor distressed. He kind of just said, hey, no, this sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory that Lazarus has gotten sick. And yet if you keep reading the story, he says that, and you get to chapter, verses 11 through 14, we won't read it all the way through, but what you see is that Jesus he decides to go. He's like, all right, we're gonna go. We're gonna go and see Lazarus. And his disciples are kind of like, wait, wait, Jesus, they're gonna kill you. <laughs> like, they're going to kill you if you go. And then Jesus is like, actually, Lazarus has already died. And they're like, now they're really perplexed. They're like, wait, Lazarus died and now you're going. And, and Jesus is just like calm and collected. He is, he's like a man on a mission. He knows that Lazarus has already died and he is going to do something about it. And his disciples are like, I, I love it. One of his disciples is just like, all right, let's just go and die with him. You know, and they just kind of start going with Jesus. And we're gonna pick up in verse 17. Verse 17, on his arrival, so his arrival where, where Lazarus had died, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. We're gonna talk about that in a minute here. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, Lord, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? I love Martha's response. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This interaction with Martha is, is so amazing. You know, Jesus shows up. Lazarus has been, he's been in the tomb for four days, which means he's probably been dead even longer. And Martha comes out and has this incredible interaction with Jesus. And it's such a cool picture of belief and faithfulness. She shows up and she's like, Lord, if you would have been here, and, and he, says, he says, listen, he's gonna rise. She's like, I know he'll rise at the resurrection. She's showing, she has this faith in the big story of Jesus. She knew that there was a larger resurrection coming, that, that the promise was that God is gonna raise the dead in the last day. He's going to raise the dead to life again. She's like, I know he'll raise then. He's like, no, no, he's gonna rise again if you believe in it. I love her answer. She's like, I know that whatever you say will happen, Lord. I know you can do it. Martha is this beautiful picture. Sometimes we talk about the, the gift of the spirit that is faithfulness. You know, the faith is a gift of the Spirit. Here's Martha. On one of the most painful days of her life, she's lost her brother, and she's in the wake of grieving and mourning. And the story doesn't paint a picture as though she's indifferent and doesn't care. No, she's deeply at a loss. She's lost her brother, and yet she looks at Jesus, and somehow she has the faith to go, I know that you're still good. I know that you can do something about it. She has the gift 
of faith given to her in Jesus' season. Now, what's interesting is you keep reading the story. We're going to interact with Mary next. We're encountering Mary and Martha on perhaps their worst day, and both of them have completely different responses to Jesus. And what we're really trying to try to focus in on today is how Jesus responds to both of them. So let's keep reading and see what happens with Mary. Verse 28, after she had said this, this is Martha, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. And I wanna, I wanna paint the picture of what's happening here. We're, we're, we are not first century Jews. I know that may come as a surprise. Some of you are not first century Jews. And so this experience of mourning or grieving that they were going through is very different than what we would experience after someone dies, okay? So when, when someone would die in a first century Jewish family, it, it was expected um, that even a, a poor family, that even a poor family would hire at least, they were expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. Now, let me, the, flute, the flute was an instrument that was used to play what's called a dirge, and a dirge was a song that was meant to evoke sadness and grief. They were trying to enter into the grief in the morning and a family would hire people to come in and do that with them. So a poor family was expected to hire at least two of these dirge players and one professional wailing woman. This woman, her job literally was to show up after someone dies and wail, to grieve, to groan, to verbalize externally the pain that the family was feeling internally to help others come in and grieve around them. Now, if a poor family was supposed to have at least two flute players and one wailing woman, what do we expect of this family? We know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were not a part of a poor family. We know this because in the very next chapter, we find them hosting a large dinner party in chapter 12. We also know this because they had their own family tomb where Lazarus was buried, and somehow Mary gets a hold of expensive perfume in chapter 12 to break over Jesus to anoint him. So this family was not poor. So chances are the procession that greets Jesus while he's standing there waiting, Mary comes before him and she, is, she herself is wailing in pain and agony over the loss of her brother. And she is followed by, by flute players and musicians that are playing sad songs and a procession of people that are wailing out in agony. And I don't know, I don't know if you've ever heard the sound of death. Have you ever heard it? Some of you have made the sound. I remember the first time I lost a close friend. I was a senior in high school, and I'll never forget the moment. I came home from school one day, and my dad grabbed me as I, as I came into the house, and he said, Aaron, I need to tell you something. See, I had this friend who was an exceptional young man, and he, was, he also was about to graduate from high school, and he, had, he was an incredible running back. He had been given a full ride uh, to a Division I college to play as a starting running back on their team, and my dad tells me, he says, Aaron, this weekend, um, Marcus and his mom were on their way home from orientation at college, and a drunk driver swerved into their lane and hit them head on, and both of them were killed instantly. 
And I remember her, my dad like told me that. And my first response was like, dad, that's not a funny joke. And my dad, he said, Aaron, I would never joke with you about that. And I just remember this like ache in me. Like, it was like my friend, like I didn't even know how, to, it was like this ache, it just came up and it came out. And I just began like weeping. And my dad just held me. The sound of grief over death. Many of you have felt it. Some of you have heard it. This is what Jesus saw. Jesus, fully human, standing there seeing his friend coming with the sound of death and a throng of people raising the sound of death behind her. And what the Bible says, it says that Jesus, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What does God in the flesh feel when he is faced with death and pain and suffering? It says he was deeply moved. Now, this translation is really interesting, and we're gonna we're gonna dive in a little bit, you know, on, on what this actually means. What does it mean, deeply moved in spirit? Some of you might have a different translation. I'm reading from the NIV. Some of you, if you have ESV or NASB, you'll notice that there's a footnote there, and it says in your footnote, it actually says he was angered. Some of you may have the word indignant in your Bible. That Jesus was indignant. He's met by this throng of people wailing and Mary, his friend, says, Lord, if you would have been here, if you would have been here. Have you ever noticed that sometimes your pain can feel like proof of God's absence? So here Jesus is greeted by all this wailing, all this pain, his friend going, why weren't you here? And Jesus, it says, is moved with anger in his spirit. It's such an interesting response you know, this word, the Greek word there that is moved in spirit, whenever it's used outside of the Bible, it is used to refer to the snorting of horses. And if it's used about humans, it is almost always, always used to describe an indignant attitude or angry or a deep anger. One Bible tr- translator says it this way, if they translate this verse, they say that Jesus was outraged in spirit. What was he angry about? See, Jesus, the one through whom all things were made and created, the one through whom God created all that is beautiful, he's looking out and he's seeing the agony that is resting upon those that he's loved. And you've got to imagine that immediately on his spirit begins flashing all the weight of sin and brokenness and death and suffering and pain that has been weighing on those that he loves ever since sin first entered the world. And Jesus is just moved. He is indignant. He's indignant towards the source of pain. He's indignant towards death itself. He's indignant towards that which hurts those that he loves and is like a horse that is snorting. Jesus in his heart is lit on fire in his bones and it totally changes the way you hear the next phrase. Jesus says, where have you laid him? It's not like a, where have you laid him? Jesus is, where have you laid him? He's like a man on a mission with fire in his bones ready to do something about that which is hurting his friends. This is the picture we are given of Jesus when he is faced with pain and suffering. He is filled with indignation and wrath and anger towards that which is hurting hurting his loved ones. I love if you keep reading this man on a mission with fire in his bones, his indignation immediately begins to shift. Keep reading. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, and Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? I love Jesus's indignation towards death and pain and suffering is completely immediately followed by this tenderness. His wrath against death and suffering gets subdued into tears of compassion and grief. Tears, yes, for the loss of Lazarus. But here's the thing, I mean, spoiler alert, if you've read the story before, Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So yes, he's filled with grief for the death of Lazarus, but really what Jesus, these tears that he weeps, he's weeping tears because he has grief for the pain of his friends. He sees their suffering. But it's not just grief for the pain of his friends. I believe that Jesus, the one through whom all things were created, he's standing there right now in this moment. He is filled with grief for the pain of every human being who's ever lost a loved one, every human being who's ever experienced suffering because of sinfulness, every human being who's experienced the pain that this broken world has brought on them. Jesus begins to weep for their pain. Jesus filled with righteous anger towards death is simultaneously filled with compassion and grief for those that are experiencing the pain. His fierceness, his tenderness, this is Jesus. I love this picture of how Jesus navigates hurt while still holding on to hope. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it feels like we, we, we kind of put these things against one another? that hope and hurt can't coexist. We think, well, you know, if someone's hurting, I, I shouldn't come in with any hope because that feels insensitive. Or, or if someone is hurting, we're like, well, I can't have hope or I wouldn't really be hurting enough. Or if someone has hope, we tell them they're insensitive that they're not hurting enough. But here's Jesus right in this moment. He's filled with hope. He knows exactly what he's about to do. And yet he also enters completely into the hurt Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever looked at a painful situation in your life and gone, Jesus, Jesus, I know like what you did in the Bible. I know the way that you healed, the way that you raised, I know all the miracles you performed. Why, what's going on right now? Why are you not doing that right now? Or have you ever looked at someone's life and gone, Jesus, I see you answering prayer over here. You redeemed that marriage, but my marriage is still on the rocks. Jesus, you healed this person, but I lost my loved one. Jesus, what's, it go, what's going on here? Jesus, are you just indifferent? Do you care? What I love about this story is that we see Jesus being anything but indifferent. He is infuriated by the thing that is causing your pain, by the thing that is causing your suffering. He's filled with righteous indignation towards it. And he is simultaneously weeping with you. He has hope for what he is going to do, and yet he enters all the way into the hurt with you. Jesus gives us a master class on how to sit with someone who's grieving. You see, when we're grieving, what we really want is just someone who knows grief. Someone who knows how to enter into it. Jesus was called by the prophet Isaiah, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows how to enter into hurt. And yet, Jesus also has this incredible hope that he holds on to. You know, if we look at the rest of the story, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the rest of the story, how it unfolds, and I want to frame it up for us a little bit, okay? Because there's a, there's a certain tendency we might have to read this through a certain light, but we're going to read the rest of the story. And what I want us to see is I believe this story, the way that Jesus holds hurt and hope simultaneously, he provides us a paradigm for how to understand the moment of human history that we find ourselves in. 
The way Jesus is gonna navigate this situation with hurt and with hope gives us a paradigm to understand how to navigate the moment in history we find ourselves in. Let's keep reading. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is an incredible moment. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can read this story and it just kind of feels like this. Okay, yeah, when Jesus gets involved, there's always a red bow on top. It just always comes on top. It's always perfect. It's always gonna end perfectly just the way we want it to. And there are so many things in this story. Can Jesus still raise the dead? Absolutely. Can Jesus still heal the sick? Absolutely. And we could take so many ways that we could go with this story about having faith in him today. But I believe this story gives us a paradigm to navigate the moment we find ourselves in where we are, are wanting to hold on to hope and yet we feel ourselves racked by hurt. See, Jesus is surrounded by a group of people, some who are hurting, some who are looking at him going, couldn't he have done something about this? And he goes and he does something about this. But the, the, the reality, this is what we have to realize, the reality in this story is that Lazarus is no longer living on this earth right now. Lazarus was raised in this moment, but he eventually died again. Martha, Mary, all of Jesus' disciples, they all died eventually. So what do we do with this story? We live, we live in a moment of history. We are on the other side of the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus. I think this story in some ways gives us foreshadowing to this moment where Jesus was about to go. He knew just in, in like two chapters, he's gonna go toe to toe. He's gonna find himself in his last moments where he's gonna go toe to toe with death. And he is going to be victorious. But in order to be victorious, he is going to suffer immensely while hanging on a cross. The moment we find ourselves in history is we're on the other side of that moment of the cross and the empty tomb. And if you don't understand that part of Jesus' story, maybe you're new to Christianity, I just wanna lay it out as simply as I can. This indignation that Jesus feels towards death and suffering and pain it's because he looks at a creation that he made to be perfect and it is racked with all of this brokenness and sinfulness is the root of all of it. You see, sinfulness, sinfulness is not, it's not, sin is not just like a list of rules that get broken. The sinfulness is when humanity steps out of alignment with God's intended beauty and God's intended purpose in creation. When, when humanity steps out of alignment with that, that is sinfulness and that is the root of suffering. That is the root of pain. Ultimately, it is the root of death. Death is the wages or the outcome of sin. And the reality that all of us, all humanity has to wrestle with is that we all contribute to the condition of the world as it is right now. Every single one of us. Jesus was moved so much by this 
that he would go to a cross, he would allow himself to be hung on a cross to suffer an agonizing death, to take in all the pain, all the suffering, the weight of death upon himself, he would absorb it for humanity. But then on the third day after that death, Jesus would be raised in a victorious triumph over death. He announced he had the victory over death and that death did not have the final answer. And so at the cross, Jesus dealt with our sinfulness and at the resurrection, he dealt with the outcome of our sinfulness and triumphing over death. And he, 1 Corinthians 15 tells, he is the first fruit of resurrection. And so the promise is that just as Jesus raised from the dead, anyone who dies in that moment after his death and before who put their hope and their faith in Jesus will all be resurrected into eternal life with Jesus. But the moment we're in right now, and a little unpacking of the gospel there, but the moment we find ourselves in right now is that we go, wait, if Jesus was so victorious at the cross and at the empty tomb, then why are we still dealing with all of the hurt and the pain that is going on right now? Why won't Jesus just step in right now? Jesus, just step in right now and deal with it. Take it all away. Like, deal with it right now. We find our answer in this beautiful, just one sentence that the apostle Peter would write long after this moment that we read about in John 11. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse nine, this is what Peter says. He says, the Lord, he's not slow in keeping his promise. He says, he's not slow in keeping his promise, as some of us would understand slowness. He says, no, instead, instead he's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. Beloved, this story so often we find ourselves in verse 37 going, Jesus, why aren't you doing something right now? But we've got to understand the fierceness of Jesus's heart towards all that causes pain, suffering, and death, as well as his tenderness for those that he loves that are experiencing it. Because the reality is all of us, our sinfulness contribute to the pain, the suffering, the death, the hardship that we see in this world. And right now, we are in this moment in history where Jesus still experiences that same indignation in his heart towards our pain. And he's holding it back. This is what the scriptures teach. He's he's holding it back. He's storing it up for a moment, for a day, a day when he will return. And all of that indignation will be released on all that causes pain, suffering, and death. It will be unleashed on them. This is what the Bible teaches. This is this concept of the wrath of God that we're so uncomfortable with. This wrath is his anger and his indignation towards sin, sorrow, pain, and death. And one day he will unleash it all, but he holds it back right now. Why? Because he's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Beloved, hear me clearly on this. That day of the Lord, when Christ's indignation against death will be released, if your hope is not in Jesus, if you've not put your faith in what he accomplished for you at the cross, if you've not put your hope in his resurrection, it is not a good day. But for those who are in Christ, for those who've put their hope in Jesus, for those who put their faith in what he accomplished at their cross and the faith in the resurrection and the hope that they have, then that moment is the most glorious moment where he will raise us all to resurrection, to eternal human flourishing with him as king. This is the gospel of Jesus. 
And it gives us context to go, man, when I'm experiencing hurt, do I still have hope? And is it okay for me to feel both? Absolutely, because right now Jesus holds out hope for that great and glorious day where he will put an end to all of it. He will raise us all to eternal life and he will do away with hurt finally, forever. And we will live in eternity with human flourishing and immortality with our eyes on King Jesus. That day is coming. And we can be filled with hope for that day, even in the midst of hurting. We can enter into grief. We can enter into sorrow. We can embrace hurt. We can shed tears. We can do all of those things, all while keeping our eyes locked on the King of Kings, the one who has promised to come back and do something about it finally in the end. How does Jesus' heart feel towards your pain, your sorrow? How does he feel about death? Oh, it, it angers him. How does he feel about you when you're in the middle of it? He's filled with tenderness. He's filled with compassion. This is why the Bible tells us that right now, you know, Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended back to heaven. I love what Romans 8, 34 says. It says, Christ Jesus who died and raised to life, that right now he is at the right hand of God interceding for you. He's praying for you. Whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever sorrow you have, he's praying for you. Hebrews 9.24, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. He's there right now. That's what Jesus is doing right now. In your hardship, he is praying for you, interceding for you, lifting you up before the Father, holding back the indignation towards all that causes pain so that as many as possible as many as possible will put their hope in him, their faith in him, and their trust in him. I love this because what it means is this, beloved, that when someone is hurting, someone in your life is experiencing pain or sorrow, when you hurt with them, when you allow yourself to just sit with them in their grief, you are taking on the posture of Jesus. It is a, it is a Christ himself is sitting right there with them. When someone is suffering and someone's going through hardship and you pray for them, you are joining your voice like it's being wrapped up with the very voice of Jesus being lifted up like a chorus to the throne of our Father. And when someone does that with you in your pain, it is the voice of Jesus as they're praying. He's lifting us up constantly. I love this picture in John 11 because it gives us this clear insight into the heart of Jesus. How does he feel about the hurt? How does he feel about the pain, the sorrow? Ah, oh, it, it incenses him. He hates all things that cause you pain. And he promises to move and to do something. And right now he's interceding. What does he do right now? Man, he's compassionate. He loves you. And so this morning, you know, I, I don't know I don't know what's going on in all of your hearts. I don't know what you're experiencing in your life right now, the places of pain, the places of sorrow. Some of you are like in a great place this morning. And I want, you to be, I want you to hear this. If you're in a great place this morning, that's great. That is awesome. Some of you have experienced hardship and suffering and yet you're moved with faith. And I wanna encourage you, don't feel like, sometimes we go, hey, how dare you have faith in the moment of something that's hard? It's like, no, like we need you to have faith. Look at, Mary, look at Martha, have faith. No matter where you are this morning, we can all gather around the body and the blood of Jesus, and we can be reminded that he is right here with us in it. He's interceding for us in the moment, and he has promised and vowed that he's going to do something about it. We can have hope beyond hope. 
So this morning, we're going to come to the table of grace. You're going to get the bread, which is the body of Jesus. You get the cup, which is his blood, is reminding us of the cross, reminding us of the resurrection. And what I want to encourage you with the people that are around you, the people that you came with, just take a minute and just pray for one another. If there's a place of hardship in your life, let someone else pray for you. Let them intercede for you. If someone in your group that you're praying with, someone that you're with is, 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 is going through something hard, just pray for them. Enter into the hurt with them all the way. Some of you may be in a place this morning where you just, you need someone to really stand beside you, to prop you up in prayer. We'll have men and women at the respond banner over here. We would love to pray with you, to pray for you. But we wanna just move into being a church that takes the posture of Jesus, that we hold on to hope, we enter into hurt, and we pray for and we administer, we minister to one another in the middle of whatever it is that life is bringing at us this morning. So I'm just gonna pray for us. And then I'm gonna release you. You can go get uh, the elements for communion. They're on the bar on either side of the room. Uh, there's some at the back. There's some here at the front. Go grab communion, come back. Have a seat. If you need to pray with somebody, there'll be someone at the respond banner that would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, I am, I'm so grateful. I'm, I struggle to even know how to, say all these things this morning, Lord, I, but I'm so grateful that you care enough that you, you have vowed to end pain, suffering, hardship, death. I'm so glad that you are fierce towards that which causes our pain. And yet, Lord, I, you are amazing that in your fierceness, in your indignation, in your anger, you are simultaneously moved to compassion for us. You are so tender, Lord. You're so good to come alongside of us, to intercede for us, to pray for us, to comfort us, to give us what we need as we wait for the glorious day when all the suffering will end. It'll all end. And Lord, in the meantime, would you help us to just keep encouraging one another, to keep praying for one another, to to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Would you help us to embody the hope that we have in you and share the good news of what you are gonna do like with everyone, that you're going to end it all, Lord. This morning as we commune with you, would you let your presence be here amongst us? Would you, would you speak hope over us? Would you speak comfort over us? Would you just be here in our midst as we take of your body and of your blood? We do this to remember you, King Jesus, and we welcome you in our midst. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Let's all grab communion. Take some time to pray with one another. If you need prayer, you can go over to the respond banner. I love you all very much.